Good morning, guys. It's Pastor Jared, and I'm going to bring you the second message in our series, Unity in a Divided World, today. It's going to be a little shorter. Last week was Loving in a Confused World. This week's Unity in a Divided World because unity is what our society needs. Unity is what our church needs. It's Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. He said this, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. So true. Unity in diversity is what we desperately need. Unity and diversity is what our society needs. Unity and diversity is what our church needs. When you have diversity, you have beauty. When you have unity, you have peace. But you need both of those things together. Because if you have unity without diversity, that's uniformity. If you have diversity without unity, you end up with things that are chaotic. And sometimes it can even get violent. So you need unity in diversity. But that is God's plan for our world. That is God's plan for the church. And God does have a role for you to play in that. Now, in America, our society is increasingly diverse. We're diverse in terms of race. We're diverse in terms of class. We're diverse in terms of ideology and outlook. But our diversity has often become division. If you think about the words of our political leaders over just the last couple years, you know that not only are we diverse, we're also divided. We need unity in diversity. This is a problem that's not just societal. It's not just one of those big things that's out there for everyone. It's also individual. Some of you have experienced the pain of this because somewhere along the line, somebody drew a line and then you were on the wrong side of it. It may have been a line of race and they were on the side that said we're superior and you're inferior. It may have been a line of gender where they said we're the right kind of gender, you're the inferior kind of gender. It may have been a line of class. My mother grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and the country club had a sign on the fence that said, no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. And you know the pain of being on the wrong side of a line that somebody drew. And maybe you didn't even understand until you were a little older that that line existed. So God wants to bring unity and diversity. Now, here's how God has planned on doing that. It's through the church. It's through the church. God wants to show the whole world how to bring unity and diversity through the church. But to understand that, you have to understand something about a story, a little story in the Old Testament called the Tower of Babel. There's this group of people. They want to build a tower up to heaven. They want to oppress everyone around them. They want to throw off the authority of heaven. They have natural, uh, national and cultural pride. So what God does is he scatters the people and he confuses their language. That's what happens at the Tower of Babel. He scatters the people and he confuses their language. Now, why are we talking about the Tower of Babel today? Because when God wants to undo this scattering and this confusion, he starts the church. That's what happens at Pentecost. At Pentecost, people who are from all the nations around the world and speak all kinds of different languages start hearing about Jesus in their own language. At Pentecost, God gathers people together and he unifies them under Jesus. Listen to Acts 2, 5 through 6. Here's what it says. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You see, the church is where God gathers diverse people together and he unifies them under Jesus. Pentecost was actually undoing the Tower of Babel. If you're a 
theology nerd, that's probably really fun for you. But for me, it's this beautiful idea that God wants to bring unity and diversity and that the church is the center of his plan to accomplish that in the world. The church desperately needs it and the world desperately needs to see how it's done. And besides, we cannot lead the way in our society unless we have our own house in order first. That's actually why when you work for unity and diversity in the church, you're part of God's plan to bring it to the whole world. So that's what we're talking about in terms of the application points for today. It's five decisions to build unity in my church because God's church is his plan. It is the, it is the hope of the world and God wants to bring unity and diversity in the church so we can be a light to a watching world. So five decisions to build unity in my church. Here's the first one. Acknowledge my family and cultural values. Acknowledge my family and cultural values. Sometimes you need to go back so that you can go forward. Sometimes you need to look at where you've come from so that you can know how to get where you need to go. Or you could say it like this, you can't fix what you can't see. And so you have to acknowledge the cultural values. In, in my family, uh, half my family is super cosmopolitan and, um, and they're very egalitarian, but I've got some uncles in Mississippi. And when I was a little boy, we would go visit them in Mississippi. And when we were growing up, man, they would, they would use the N-word like, like it was just normal part of their language. I remember being so shocked as a little boy to hear this. You know, that sends a really powerful message to everybody in the family about what's socially acceptable, about um, who's inferior and who's superior in terms of race and ethnicity. I, I just remember, like, you have to know that this is where you come from if you want to get to somewhere else. Um, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, this happened with the apostle Peter. Peter was a Jew, which meant he couldn't eat certain kinds of food. He had to eat kosher. And there was a vision that he had one day while he was praying, and a big sheet comes down out of heaven, and all these non-kosher, these unclean animals are on it, and a voice from heaven says, Peter... Kill and eat. Now, if you, were having, if you were praying and a voice from heaven came and told you to do something, what would you do, right? Especially if it was telling you to eat tasty animals. <laughs> You'd probably just do it. But listen to Peter's response in Acts 10, 14 through 16. He says, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Peter had to hear a voice come out of heaven three times and tell him to do something. And he kept telling this voice from heaven, no. Why? Because that's how strong the cultural attitude was that he had about food. So you've got to take a personal inventory and look at where you come from. What were your parents and grandparents' views on ethnicity? What were your parents' and grandparents' views on race and gender? Do those square with the gospel message of Christ? Does that square with the teaching from the Bible? Did people in your home ever say some version of this sentence? Never trust a fill-in-the-blank. Those kinds of attitudes can't, cannot exist in the new family of Jesus. And you need to look back at where you came from so you can learn to live in this new family well. All right, the second decision to build unity in your church so that we can build unity and diversity and we can be a light to the world as well, is to practice accommodation and assimilation. Jesus said, if you want to follow him, you have to surrender your rights and your preferences. He called it denying yourself. Luke 9, 23 says, Jesus said, Jesus said to his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
that denying yourself is about surrendering your rights and your preferences. Now, the way that healthy individuals lay down their rights and preferences is by assimilating into the broader culture, right? If you were to show up to a church, let's say in Africa, and they had their worship style, and they had their prayer style, and they had their teaching style, a mature person would, would show up and say, I can worship with you guys. I don't want you to change everything about who you are for me. That's how a, a healthy individual practices assimilation. But a healthy community practices accommodation. A healthy community says, how can we change who we are to help love people who may not be as comfortable here? And in healthy families, both assimilation and accommodation are happening all the time. Um, Say I married into your family. Now, I'm already married into Heather's family, and it's a pretty awesome one. But say I married into your family, and I go to your big family reunion, and everybody's having barbecue. Um, and I show up, if I show up and say, man, I hate barbecue, let's all have burgers. You would think, man, what is wrong with this guy? He shows up, and all of a sudden, it's all about him. That shows immaturity. I need to assimilate into the family. But on the other hand, maybe after a year or two, the family says, you know what, Jared doesn't like barbecue. Let's make burgers for him because we know that he loves them. That's accommodation. And in a healthy church, there's always assimilation and accommodation that is happening. Now, let me give you a, a heads up to the wise on this. This is not a problem that you can solve. This is a tension you have to manage, right? Problems you can solve and they go away. This is a tension that you have to manage between assimilation and accommodation that never goes away. But we all have to practice it and we all have to engage in it because Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. So we both work on accommodation and assimilation. So you may say, where do I need to work on assimilation and make it less about my preferences? Or if you're part of a, a community group, signups are going on right now. You can sign up online. You can sign up on the app. You might say, how can our group accommodate the people who are in our group? So it's always this tension of how, can, how do I need to assimilate? How can I help accommodate? All right. The third decision you can make to bring unity in your church is to practice practical humility. Jesus was the most humble person who's ever lived. And Philippians 2, 2 through 3 talks about this. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the world. I mean, when think about the last conference you went to. Who, who did they invite to speak? It's usually the, the biggest person, the most braggadocious with the, the most shameless self-promotion, but humility is in the way of Jesus. Practical humility means it's just not about you. I've heard it said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. So when you join a community group this semester, here's how you can practice practical humility. It's curiosity about where people come from. How did they grow up? Because sometimes people show up in church and they're just smiling and they look all put together, but that's not where they come from. And you gotta, you got to learn about them, dig into their story, visit their neighborhood, visit the church they grew up in, find out where they come from. Practical humility is asking people, what their favorite dish is and making it for them. It's learning about their culture, their heritage, the things that they're so excited about that they grew up with that you can learn about too. Practical humility is taking time to understand the unique struggles and temptations of the people that you're closest to, especially in your community group. Because so many times Christianity is just smiles and veers and oh, praise Jesus. But do you, but 
do you know how to pray for the people in your group? I mean, really pray for the people that are in your community group? Practical humility knows. Practical humility is also about asking people for help when you need it. This is a big one for some of you because you don't like to ask for help. The church is the place where the CEO can learn from the secretary. And the most um, powerful people in the church by the world standards could get help in their marriage from younger couples in their community group, right? Humility says, I need help sometimes. Here's the deal. Humility is the soil in which unity grows. And without it, you have prideful people and our diversity becomes our division. So practice practical humility. All right, the fourth decision you can make to bring unity in your church, watch my words. That's a big one, watch my words. Your tongue is a tiny little muscle. It's certainly smaller than your biceps. But with it, you can build people up or you can tear people down. According to the Bible, your tongue has more destructive potential than an entire forest fire. Listen to how powerful it is, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life, that is huge. That's how strong words are. They can build up, they can tear down, they can divide. Listen to this um, from Titus 3 about the power of words to divide. It says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Those are strong words about the power of words. Today, you can decide to watch your words. Now, I want to speak just as your pastor for a second. I think it's so important to watch your words, especially when you're talking about someone who's across a line from you, right? It's so easy to speak ill of people who aren't as woke as you. It's so easy to throw people under the bus when they're rich or when they're wealthy. We're so quick to dismiss people who seem to have perfect lives on the outside. We joke about people who don't have great social skills. You have to be unbelievably careful about your words, especially when that person is across some kind of line that our society has created from you. So watch your words. It's too easy to caricature people. And it's much harder to love people with your words. But the power of life and death is in your words. So decide to watch your words and you'll be a unifier. Okay, so the four decisions so far have been acknowledge my family and cultural attitudes, practice assimilation and accommodation, watch my words, practice practical humility, and here's the final one, love across the lines. It is easy to love people who love you. It's much easier to love people who just get you, who just get where you come from. That's what everyone in the world does. They love people who love them. But when we talked about love last week, we encountered Jesus' teaching that love in the Bible from God and the love that God expects us from us goes so far beyond that. Listen to what he says in Luke 6. Jesus says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same thing. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, everybody loves those who love them. You don't get credit for loving people who make your life awesome because it's not really selfless, is it? 
No, Jesus calls us to go further in our love. Listen to how he finishes that thought in Luke 6. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So you love people who aren't like you. You love people who don't get you. You love people who cannot do anything for you in return. You love those across the lines because this world is always inventing lines, whether it's race, class, ethnicity, gender. I mean, it could be people who wear red T-shirts and blue T-shirts. It doesn't matter. This world is constantly inventing lines. And to follow Jesus is to love across the lines. And the reason that we do that as followers of Jesus is because that's what God did for us. You can hear it in Jesus' words when he says, that's what, that is how the Most High loves you. He says, you'll be sons of the Most High. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You know, it's so easy to love people who are like you. It's just natural. But when we became Christians, we signed up for the supernatural. We signed up to love like God loves. We love across the lines. You know, God did this by loving us even when we were still stuck in our sin. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, who, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God broke down the wall between you and him, and he's still breaking down walls today. He does it through Jesus, who, when he died on the cross, reconciled you to God, and he makes peace. You know, you may have this deep desire in your heart to be someone who brings unity and diversity. But you can't do that until you, um, until you deal with the division between you and God. The way that you do that is by trusting in Jesus. You come to Jesus who forgives you of your sins and leads your life. You say, God, I know I can't do this on my own. I know I need my relationship with my Heavenly Father healed and ask Him to forgive you of your sin, and lead your life. And then you commit to follow him for the rest of your days. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can love across the lines. Martin Luther King once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. 